I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of Newsbeat. As you're all well aware, major cities across America have been gripped by massive anti-racism protests, with outraged demonstrators first taken to the streets of Minneapolis, the site of 46-year-old George Floyd slaying at the hands of police. The recent death of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery have also served as catalysts for these uprisings. In Floyd's case, four Minneapolis police officers have been charged in his horrific death, including Derek Chauvin, who pinned his knee against Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes, killing him. Investigators have since charged the officer with second-degree murder. So here we are, yet again. More black lives taken by the police. But somehow this moment feels different. Protesters are not only using their platform to condemn police brutality, but also the cancer of white supremacy and racism that's infected this nation since its founding. It would seem America could be at a critical tipping point. In recent days, commentators have compared these rebellions to the waves of protests that engulfed America in the 1960s, specifically during 67 and 68. To gain a better understanding of this moment, we've reached out to Lawrence Larry Ham, a lifelong activist who was 13 years old during the Nork Rebellion of 1967. You may remember Ham was a guest on our award-winning episode documenting how institutionalized oppression causes marginalized communities to rise up and fight back. That episode was titled, Why We Riot. Now Ham, who's challenging Democratic Senator Cory Booker in New Jersey's July 7th primary, was kind enough to join us again to discuss the historical nature of these rebellions and whether he thinks this visceral response can produce systematic change. So with that, please support Newsbeat by subscribing on your favorite podcast app or sharing us on social media or with your friends and neighbors and supporters and haters. Also, take a moment to leave a rating and a review. It helps us get noticed. To learn more about how we arrived at this critical juncture, head over to our newly formed collection of episodes that really provide a guide to civil unrest in America. Visit us at usnewsbeat.com slash civil unrest. Once again, my name is Manny Faces. On behalf of the entire Newsbeat and Maury Creative Studios teams, we wish you the best during these troubling times. Now, here are our editors, Rashed Mian and Christopher Tawarski with Larry Ham. So, Larry, you were 13 years old at the time of the 1967 Newark Rebellion. During those protests, was there a sense inside Newark and across other cities in America, was there a sense that, the, that these protests could lead to serious change in the country? Not only was there a sense, we, we actually had a slogan in the 70s to describe what had happened in the 60s. The slogan was called Right Around the Cornerism. You know, I shouldn't say slogan, a phrase. It was that sense that in the 60s, there was so much uprising that a lot of people believed. And, you know, the uprisings were a material basis for that belief. This wasn't a belief based on thin air. You know, this was a belief based on the hundreds of rebellions that went on during the 60s. Between 1960 and 1972, there were over 1,000 urban uprisings in the United States. I mean, in the years of 1967 and 1968, both those years, there were almost 150 rebellions in different cities during both those years, 67 and 68. 
So with all these uprisings going on, revolution was in the air. There definitely was a feeling that a movement could be built for fundamental transformation. Now, when I say that, that's an overarching assessment, but there were also other currents running through. Uh, there was a current that was not looking toward socioeconomic transformation, but there was a current that was looking toward taking over the machinery of government at the local level. For instance, in Newark, New Jersey, we had an apartheid arrangement. We had a very predominantly black city that was controlled by a white political elite. And that's why we had the slogan black power because other ethnic groups would have representation commensurate with their numbers on government bodies, but African-Americans didn't. In, in 1967, we were over 60% or maybe nearly 60% of the population of Newark we had one representative on the nine member city council who represented the like the Bantu stand, so to speak, of Newark, which was the central ward, where for decades they tried to herd all black people to live in. You know, so there was no way you could justify having a white representative for the central ward. So that one had to have and only got it in nineteen sixty. It wasn't like they got it as soon as the transformation was made. They got it because there was a civil rights movement in the 60s of which many people were involved in that movement and people felt, you know, that we should have political representation. And so, of course, the easiest place to make that happen would be the all-Black Central Ward. But, for instance, you had the South Ward, which was predominantly Black, but it had a white representative. And so we had an apartheid political arrangement. So the demand was for Black power. And in most people's minds, black power meant black political power, that black people should have a right to self-determination because under the current political arrangement, we were denied self-determination. We were black cities with white representatives, black congressional districts with white representatives, black counties with white representatives, and so on and so forth. So black power was a struggle to get the black political representation that black people would do under the so-called, and I'm, this is me speaking now, the rules of the game, so to speak. And that's what happened. And so you had two trains running or several trains running. You had a train that was running that said, we need fundamental transformation. There was a strong anti-capitalist feeling in the 1960s exemplified by groups like the Black Panther Party, which was not just calling for Black representation, but was in fact calling for systemic change, was calling for revolution. That's what they were calling for. They were calling for revolution. You know, a lot of other groups that were progressive weren't necessarily opposed to revolution, but were looking at the practical requirements of the moment. And the practical requirements were to get Black representation where it was due in those places where there were black communities or predominantly black uh, wards, cities, counties, state legislative districts, congressional districts, state representatives, national representatives, et, et cetera. 
So there were several current, you got to keep in mind that the 60s, it, it was complex. I mean, yes, the overarching characteristic was that it was a time of rebellion. It was a time of revolution. But there were a multiplicity of organizations that were involved in struggle. And they didn't all necessarily share the same ideology. Some of them were anti-capitalist. A lot of them weren't. Some of them for, were for revolutionary change. A lot of them were for political change in the strictest sense. Some of them were about economic uplift. Some of them weren't about change in the system. They were about self-help. You know, the belief that somehow we could create some type of black utopia within, you know, the current political arrangement. There were all kinds of currents, different currents running among white people, different currents running among black people and other people, too. All kinds of parts of the population were in motion, struggling for justice, and they had different ideologies. And a lot of times these ideologies were in competition for the support of the people. So it was a very effervescent period. You couldn't be in the 60s, you know, and not feel it, not sense that change was in the air and that change was possible. Even in the aftermath of the rebellion of 1967 in Newark, literally, literally during when we were under military occupation, there was a Black Power Conference in Newark. You know, it still amazes me when I read about it, how they made it happen, you know, in the aftermath of the actual uprising. And then during the actual military occupation, black leaders from around the country came to Newark and had a black power conference. So there, there was a lot going on. And yes, you know, there was a sense in the air, definitely an understanding that fundamental transformation was needed. And there was a belief among some. Uh, that a revolution was possible. Incredible, Larry. And and just for listeners, I, I just want to um, to make a note uh, that if they have not heard the previous episode that Larry, you were on with Dr. Cornel West and Rosa Clemente and Professor Elizabeth Nix uh, called Why We Riot, to please go back and listen. And in that episode, Larry, you, you painted such a visceral portrait of the chaos and the destruction that you lived through back then during the 67 rebellion the, the smell of the of the buildings on Springfield Avenue burning the the the, the shattered glass on the oh, ground yeah. uh, beneath oh, yeah. and i was wondering if you could for for listeners how does your experience in that rebellion juxtapose with what's going on now the flashpoint last time uh, as you so eloquently told us on the episode, was the arrest of that cab driver, John Smith, and, and the decades upon decades of racial oppression going on in Newark. How would you compare what happened then with the uprising sparked by George Floyd's murder? And once again, could you please explain to listeners the difference between a, quote, riot and an uprising or rebellion um, and what we're seeing and witnessing now on the streets? Right. Well, what happened in the 1960s, because remember, the rebellions took place all throughout the 1960s. In fact, I'm going to say this. These urban rebellions have taken place throughout American history. 
you know, where it just proves the rule where there is oppression, there is resistance. You know, black people had uprisings in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, into the 21st century. Even in the 21st century, this is not the first urban disturbance, urban uprising, urban rebellion that we've had. And almost all of these rebellions have been sparked by incidents of police brutality. You know, it's very difficult. I'm sure there's some that were sparked by other incidents, but it's very difficult for me to think of one where police brutality, a brutal act, a brutal murder, brutal beating by police did not trigger, did not light a fire to uh, years of oppression and then people just explode. You know, these rebellions, they're not planned. You know, it, there's as much planning that goes into these rebellions as there is for a hurricane or a tornado. When the conditions are right, that's when they happen. You can't predict it for sure. You, you could see you could predict you could see it coming, but you don't know where that tornado is going to touch down first. And that's what these rebellions are. They are the result of social oppression and pressure built up over the years. And then suddenly when people just one thing is the tipping point. When people say, I just can't take no more, and they just go out and they do what they want to do. You know, uh, some people do what they want to do. In one sense, it's terrible, right? The destruction that's left in the wake of these things. But in another sense, it's fine. Because you ignored for years the fact that the police were unjustly harassing brutalizing, beating, killing, violating the constitutional right of people. You turned your eyes away from that for years. People, the activists marched and protested and you ignored them. So now you reap the whirlwind. I tell these people that don't come to me to ask me to condemn people who are doing these things. If you didn't want these disturbances to happen, then you should end the police brutality. Every time we say enough is enough, you must end this from happening. And then there's a whole passion play that's enacted out in every city over and over again. People crying for reform, promising things, but only touching the edges of the structure never going to the heart of the matter, and then you have these explosions. This is the cost of ignoring the cries of people who are oppressed and who want an end to their oppression. So while I, I have sympathy for those small business owners, you know, who get caught up in this stuff, but you too, you too, small business owner, when did you speak out? against injustice? When did you take a stand with the oppressed? You didn't. You took their money year after year after year, and you ignored what was going on in your community, and now you reap the whirlwind. The Bible says you reap what you sow. 
An American is reaping what she's sown by ignoring decade after decade the demand to radically reform. Reform doesn't begin to describe what must be done to the police in America. It has to be totally deconstructed and reconstructed again because it was constructed on the basis of racial oppression. Growing out of the slave patrols of the 19th century, supporting being, in fact, the bulwark. When you look at these history books, in most of the pictures, you don't see the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan rides at night. In most of those pictures, you see police beating, water hosing, putting dogs on the people who were fighting against Jim Crow racial apartheid in America. The police were an essential component in the maintenance of the system of racial slavery and the system of racial apartheid in America, the legal system. And now it is a critical component in the enforcement of the de facto system that continues after the deconstruction of Jim Crow segregation, of the segregationist law. It's only the laws that have been removed, you know. The segregation is still there. The power relationships of the old period are still there. And the structure of white superordination and black subordination is still there. Well, Larry, uh, we really hear the, you know, the, obviously the outrage and the pain coming through you. So we really appreciate you just being so raw and open with us. This one could be tough. I want to ask, um, we keep hearing people you know, ask themselves, ask each other, what makes Floyd's slang different from all the others that we've seen, right? It's something that I think we're all having trouble grasping. You know, no one wants to compare the deaths of African-Americans at the hands of police. Right. Um, I'm So I'm just wondering, you know, you know, in your mind, what does this make it different? Do you think the pandemic, especially the disproportionate impact it has had on the health and financial well-being of African-Americans has partly fueled these protests? And just what are some of the other racial injustices compounding this? Right. I think what we have here is the perfect storm of oppression leading to a mass rebellion, a mass response. Because as you said, first of all, the technology of the day, the cell phone, more than 3 billion of them in the world today made possible for people to see the actual murder of George Floyd in real time. Because when it was first being videotaped, it was broadcast. It wasn't just videotaped. I read an article that said that 19,000 people saw the murder of George Floyd while it was taking place because of the people who were standing there with their cell phone. So people saw it almost immediately after it was happening. It's not like we had to wait for the 11 o'clock news or the 12 o'clock news. They saw it when it happened and it was instantly broadcast to the world, to everybody that didn't see it the moment it happened. And it was so horrific so grotesque, so abominable, and so iconic of the 
phenomenon of white supremacy in America that it filled people with disgust. And people who probably had never been to a demonstration in their lives couldn't sleep that night, couldn't feel good at that moment, couldn't find the words to talk to somebody about it. And they felt compelled that they had to do something about it. So you had the horrific imagery blasted into people's consciousness. And then it happened during this pandemic when the class and racial inequities within the healthcare system in America were laid bare for all to see. But then that is compounded not just by the pandemic itself, what it revealed about our healthcare system, but the lockdown, I believe, the lockdown and the tension that the lockdown caused. People couldn't go to work. They couldn't live their lives as they normally did. Many places, people were under curfew. All of us were under curfew at some time. Many of us sick. Many of us, particularly in the black community, having lost loved ones in our family, friends that we knew, co-workers. All of this helped to create a tension, which that incident combined with at that moment, I think, helped to cause this explosion that we have seen across the country. Do you know, I can't go to all the demonstrations. People are calling me because I imagine because of the big demonstration we had Saturday, people are calling me to come. People are just organizing protests about Floyd. That's why I, have, I hardly have any voice now because I was at one last night where uh, in Patterson where hundreds of people came out, Patterson, New Jersey. But people all across the state of New Jersey are having demonstrations and they're calling me, and there's like three or four going on the same day, same time. I can't go to all of them. But I think it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that there's this outpouring from people wanting to pro because if there was ever a time we need protest, it's now. Because America is standing face to face with fascism. And maybe as we have these protests against Floyd, it will also help people to understand that there are other evils that we must also organize and fight against. So that's why I think that all this protest is wonderful. It's wonderful. I wouldn't care if there were 20 protests a day. The question now is, how do we sustain them through November? Because hopefully there'll be several byproducts. One byproduct will be putting things in place to ameliorate against the evil of police brutality. And hopefully the other thing will feed into the removal of Trump from the White House. Trump, who is now openly the titular head of the neo-fascist movement in the United States. Larry, I, I, you know, I, I can't help but in your description of this horrific murder of George Floyd, I can't help but think about Emmett Till. Yes. How his mother's decision to leave the coffin open and to expose the, the mutilation, the, the torture um, to the world 
and I, and I'm, I do not want to obviously over exaggerate or or contort or in any way, because to me Emmett Till is is you know his death pretty much you know launched a lot of the of the changes in the in in, in the civil rights movement. Do you feel there's a potential that on some level, potentially is is he semi the, maybe the the Emmett Till of these younger generations? It, this could be an Emmett Till moment. Yes. The only thing that that makes me hesitate a little bit is that we've had other Emmett Till moments. Great point. The murder of Philando Castillo, that was an Emmett Till moment. The murder of Alton Sterling, that was an Emmett Till moment. We saw those murders. We had FaceTime then, and we saw those murders. We saw that cop shoot into the car. His girlfriend was right there. So we've had other Emmett Till moment. The question is, will this be the one? But see, what we're getting here in this situation, we're really getting very subtle lessons in social change. You know, I was in a gas station uh, yesterday getting gas, and there was a truck behind me. The truck pulled up to get gas, and the man shut his engine off to get the gas. And then when it was time to pay for the gas and leave. He paid for the gas, and then he started his truck up again. The truck started, but the engine wouldn't turn over. He started it again. The truck started, but the engine wouldn't turn over. Again and again and again. And then finally, the engine ran, and he was able to pull out of the demonstration. The movement is kind of like that. We have these moments where there's power there, because you put your key in, you turn on the ignition, something does happen, but not enough to get the engine going. We can only wait and see if this will be the moment that our engine starts to to rev up and we're able to pull off in our movement for social justice. But each time is a good one, even when the engine doesn't start. Is a good one because you got to keep trying until the engine starts, right? Until it turns over. You got to keep trying. So we keep trying. This is one more effort. And it's so terrible that innocent blood has to be spilled before we can get enough people to come together to change this thing. But that may be the nature of the beast that we are dealing with. And it shouldn't be a foreign story to so many, particularly people who say they're Christian. Because in the Christian theology, it is in fact in the death of Jesus that we find salvation. So it shouldn't surprise us that innocent lives are taken in the struggle for social justice before there is some change. It's an unfortunate thing. And it's something that we don't want to happen. But it just seems that that people don't really become concerned until they understand that it is a matter of life and death. And, and Larry, you mentioned Trump, but you also talked about, it's amazing when you hear how you can talk about just, you know, remembering clearly what happened to you when you were 13 years old, experiencing the rebellion, the aftermath. And Newark, obviously, 26 people died 
during the rebellion. There was a stat I saw that something like more than 20,000 bullets were fired during the demonstrations. When you hear the ostensible, strongest, the most powerful person on the planet, the president of the United States, telling the governors that they need to basically conquer the protesters, dominate the streets, hint at sending in the U.S. military to subdue protesters, calling protesters terrorists. What does that bring to mind to you, someone who's, you know, lived in a city where 26 people died protesting? And then after that, can you just talk about the serious, I know there's so many, the serious reforms that are needed right now? Right. Well, Trump's recent language in terms of what must be done with regard to the protests, if that's not fascist language, I don't know what is. We must dominate them. He's telling the governors, you must dominate them. You know, he is clearly a man that's taking lessons out of Hitler's playbook. It just shows what a dangerous point we are at in this country. You know, Trump clearly, I mean, no matter who is in the White House, we have to struggle because it's not just about who's in the White House. It's about a system that continues to function in an oppressive way regardless who's in the White House. But Trump clearly represents something qualitatively different. And I think what he represents is neo-fascism or proto-fascism, whatever you want to use. I mean, he doesn't have, a, he doesn't have people goose-stepping in the streets yet, but that seems to be the path that he's on. And the people he admires and likes the most in the world are all these authoritarian neo-fascist. So clearly we are at a very dangerous crossroads, one path to democracy and the other path to fascism. And we have to fight with all our might uh, against fascism. The other thing is, what do we need for police reform? There are many things. This is a multi-dimensional problem. There's no one thing that's going to solve it. You need a whole bunch of things working in tandem. But it's like when you have a ball of, of yarn and it's all tangled up, there's that one knot. If you can untangle that knot, it'll help you untangle all the others. And I think it's this. The police act with impunity because they know they're going to get away with it. 99.9% of police brutality cases don't even end in the conviction of the officer. 99% of police brutality incidents don't even become a case. They don't even get to the courthouse because the people they brutalize are so poor, most of them can't even afford any kind of vigorous legal defense. And so it's whatever way the prosecutor wants it to go. And the prosecutors depend on the police to do their work for them. So the system is not going to reform itself. So I think the thing that's most important is that the police must understand that they cannot be above the law. And when I say the police are above the law, I'm not speaking metaphorically. They are above the law. There's a different set of rules that are in operation for them than there are for us. And the solution is to have one justice system that works the same way for everybody. Not one way for the police and one way for the rest of us. 
there are a bulwark of laws, federal, state, local laws, and even contractual agreements that work to protect police exactly in moments like this. They literally have it written into their contract what the government that they work for cannot do to them. For instance, the 48-hour rule. If I go out here and kill somebody, I better have a reason why as soon as I get arrested, I'll be arrested quickly. The police have something called the 48-hour rule. They don't even have to talk to anybody for 48 hours. They got time to get their lie together, to get their union, to get legal representation, to get their own personal lawyer, to get their co-workers to say whatever it is needs to be said. I mean, from the, from the jump, they have a set of arrangements that work to protect them. In the law itself, the standard of proof to prove their guilt is almost so high it can never be met. If they're charged with civil rights violations, the standard of proof is so high that you could hardly find them guilty on civil rights violations. Why do you think it's third-degree murder for Chauvin in Minneapolis? Because the prosecution doesn't think they can convict them on anything else. And they want to convict them on something because they know that if they don't convict Chauvin, that city will be ashes. And maybe a whole lot of cities, too. So we must change the laws, the laws that give police a certain degree of immunity they, from the jump street as agents of the state. And I'm not speaking rhetorically here. Sworn police officers whose job it is to uphold the laws of whatever state they work for, they have a certain degree of immunity that operates for them. And then when we get beyond the law, they have a culture within the force that protects them, a blue wall of silence. They have an infrastructure that's tilted toward them because many prosecutors are former police officers or have family members that are former police officers or whose whole network is law enforcement. They have a system that tilts toward them. They have a culture that works for them. They have laws that protect them. And that's why we can't get most of them convicted. So we have to remove those laws, remove that veil of protection so that they know that if they commit an act like this, they will lose their job, they will lose their pension, and they will lose their freedom. Hey, Larry, um, I just want to uh, just obviously thank you for coming on. But really quickly, can you just tell people how they can uh, look up information for your Senate bid? And I believe the uh, primary election in New Jersey has been extended to July, if you want to just give people that information. Yes, my name is Lawrence Ham, and I am a candidate for United States Senate. I'm running against Cory Booker in the New Jersey Democratic primary. The primary uh, technically takes place on Tuesday, July the 7th, Tuesday, July the 7th. But we're going to have a first time all vote by mail primary. People in New Jersey are going to receive their ballots in the mail. And so election day is the day that you open your ballot and mark it and send it in. If people want to find out more about my campaign, they can call the campaign at 973-332-6195. Or they can go 
to our campaign website, which you would put in your browser, not in Google, put it in your browser, www.ham4senate.org, www.ham4senate.org, or 973-332-6195. You can call us or go there, make a donation to the campaign, sign up to be a volunteer. We're fighting hard in New Jersey to bring progressive politics to the United States Senate. Uh, in shorthand, uh, my platform is very similar to Bernie Sanders' platform. I'm running on a platform for racial, social, economic justice. At the top of my agenda is racial equity and racial justice to end the school to prison pipeline, to end mass incarceration, to end police brutality, to end racial discrimination, to put the guts back in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act that have been taken back by the Supreme Court over the years. And then, of course, I'm running to support Medicare for all, single payer, universal health care. I'm running to double the minimum, the federal minimum wage is $7.25. You can't pay rent off that. We must have at least a minimum wage of $15. But more important than a minimum wage, I'm running on a living wage. Everybody should make enough money to support themselves and their families if you work 40 hours a week. I also support the universal basic income in order to eliminate poverty in the United States. I support free colleges, universities, and trade schools so that every person that wants to go to college will be able to go to college. And I support the canceling of all student debt. We have generations of young people that are literally debt slaves to the banks. This must end. I support the Green New Deal. I see it as a component of a national federal jobs program. I'm advocating that. I think we need that just as folks needed in the, in the 30s when Roosevelt put in place the WPA and the CCC, the Green New Deal, to break our dependence on fossil fuels and to develop the alternative energy industries of solar, wind, hydro, and even geothermal. You know, those are, are, are clean sources of energy and we can create millions of jobs doing that. But I also support the creation of a national federal jobs program with jobs that are living wage for the 40 million people that are now unemployed in the United States. I'm 66 years old. Never in my lifetime have we had that many people unemployed. And when this coronavirus crisis is over, many of the jobs that those people had, they're not going to be able to return to. So we need a national jobs program to put everybody back to work. We need to end these useless, wasteful wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, bring the troops home, take the trillions we're spending on war, spend it on jobs, education, healthcare, and housing. And I oppose any regime change wars. I oppose war with Iran, war with Venezuela. I oppose any attempts to start wars with China, Russia, or anybody else. No more war. That's my platform. No more war. And finally, we must have a progressive system of taxation. The billionaires, the millionaires, the banks and the corporations must pay their fair share of taxes. 
How else could they have trillions of dollars squirreled away in accounts in offshore banks in the Bahamas and in other foreign countries? The rich must pay their fair share of taxes. So that's a thumbnail sketch of my platform. I have a much more extensive platform that people can see on my website. That's great. Uh, thank you, Larry. First, and, and we really appreciate you coming on, uh, especially during this you know, troubling time. It's inspiring, obviously, to see the protesters hit the streets, um, but it's also a tragic time you know, for this country. So we really appreciate you doing this, and we wish you good luck in your Senate bid. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to let me speak to people for a few minutes. Thank you so much.